Welcome to Diving Into The Wreckage with Varn and Sean, and today we are in part two of an unknown number of <laughs> episodes. Uh, not part- just unknown to you guys, very much <laughs> unknown to us as well. <laughs> uh, which which is part six of our series. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to call it 6.2 of the Sovereign 6.2. Debt Crisis. And we went over the theoretical conceptions that have kind of you know, played into this. We've talked about world systems analysis and how it lays into this. We've talked about the insights and, and strong limits of uh, modern monetary theory and understanding the situation. Um, and I think, and we've kind of puritized neoliberalism a little bit for this, yeah. but I think we need to, I think you, you know, I wanted to jump in and just started talking about all the doom. <laughs> like, cause every time I feel like we go away from this two weeks come by and I'm like, Hey, Sean, shit's way worse than we talked about it two weeks ago seriously (laughs) we were just mentioning um you know on top of a massive sovereign debt crisis um pakistan of course now facing like world historic flooding Uh, it's it's a real tragedy what's happening over there on top of a political crisis where the populist leader uh khan was uh overthrown by the military generals and so you have pakistan which we had mentioned i think in the last episode a a couple few weeks ago as one of these pressure points yeah and now like half of the watershed of the himalayan mountains is just poured down through pakistan so i mean things are escalating very very quickly the, the the belt of the around the Himalayas with all between seawater rises and glaciation melting, it's going to be a disaster. I, I, I mean, like, it, I, I suspect we'll see disasters in Afghanistan and in, um, in Nepal and in northern India as well and in southern China, um, which if you read the book by Alfred McCoy, McCoy was pointing this out about part of the limits to the Belt and Road Initiative was that some of its key players, um, including China itself, is in the first, is in the the places that are going to get most hit by climate change. And I can guarantee you this is going to sour relations with China. Because while a lot of people are in Pakistan, of course, they're going to blame the United States. But the the next biggest polluter they deal with is China. Um. I mean, the mass uh, productive apparatus that has been moved over there over the last 50 years or so, of course, right? Right. I mean, it, it's not per capita worse than the U.S., but it is in raw numbers worse than yeah, the U.S. It's not historically and, worse than the United States, but in absolute terms. it's Yeah, it's, it's bad. And and um, it has backed off some of its green energy pledges in the last year out of, out of uh, propriety. I've been talking about how... Um, how all these nations have been trying to meet their green energy pledges because they they're discovering that they they don't have the will to develop enough R and D into uh, making renewable energy more efficient and and despite what a lot of liberals tell you, renewable energy is generally outside of nuclear power not that efficient and nuclear power has its own problem and it's not just the meltdown problem it's also the uranium problem. The uranium uh, problem and then a very specific set of uh, political and economic problems as well, which is that up until now, and they're trying to build um, like modular, smaller reactors, but up until now, just a massive amount of outlay of uh, surplus capital of um, mm-hmm. state driven investment for something that's going to potentially last for decades. I mean, that's 
completely against the current of what not just capitalists, but also the state over the last 40, 50 years have been, you know, trying to accomplish. However, the countries that have done it, such as France, are not experiencing nearly, or even the United States, uh, although we've done a lot of other stuff too, um, are not experiencing nearly as bad of uh, energy inflation. I mean, uh, so if people who, uh, I've been telling people for years that, the, the the wackadoos in the 90s and aughts talking about peak oil, what made them wackadoo was not the peak oil theory. That was correct. Yeah. Um, it was that they thought it would lead to immediate, immediate collapse. Um, we are beyond peak oil, my friends. Like we that's already happened. We're just uh, we've we've developed various different technologies and techniques in order to get the real dirty and shitty stuff out of the ground and processed. Sometimes the amount of energy that goes into that is all or taking that out and refining it is almost as much as, you know, it actually right. gives off. Right. But so far, we've discovered that to scale solar and wind at efficiency levels that that meet fossil fuels is not happening and how. How the EU has basically handled this has been uh, having Norway, the great social democracy hmm. built on a giant gas station in the sea, <laughs> um, uh, ramp down its production and basically offsorting that to other areas, a.k.a. Russia. Yeah, and northern Africa to a right. lesser extent. And both of those places... Well, Russia has political instability and Northern Africa has every other kind of instability right now because it's also getting hit by climate change. Yeah. Um, so we'll come back to this. And I also want to talk about every there up until a few months ago, basically, the left was just touting this Chinese miracle that was going to keep the entire world afloat because I, because they're dumb. I, I really don't know. It, it, it because does, they don't take political economy seriously. Because right. They see. Uh, Marx as not primarily a critic of political economy and communists, but instead as a, a person whose slogans you attach to your right. Twitter profile or whatever. I mean, any reasonable observer had to see that, you know, uh, growth rates of 15 to 20 percent are not sustainable for more than 30 years or so. And also, of course, looked at the interaction between China and America and the rest of the world economy to see that it wasn't just a, an outsourcing of production there. But it was also a mass proletarianization of hundreds of millions of Chinese people. That well, of course, eventually has to run dry. And of course, you have to have a rise, as we've seen a rise over the last 15, 20 years or so, a middle strata within China uh, that cannot be so severely hyper exploited as had been the case in the past. Right. And so this this has led to I mean, China has been at eight percent growth for what for like a decade now it's been carrying it's still been carrying the global economy china uh poured the equivalent in its state-driven subsidy uh for infrastructure not just railroads but also dams and roads and bridges and all sorts of social infrastructure too uh poured more concrete since 2008 uh than the entire united states did uh through the course of the 20th century i mean 600 billion dollars equivalent thrown into that in order to keep you know the one small sputtering engine of the global economy running for the last 15 years. Yeah. I mean, and so it kind of saved everybody from the downturn that in QE basically saved yeah. the capitalists from the downturn. 
Uh, Didn't save us from it, though. Nope. Didn't save the American homeowner from it, if you, the subprime. Right, and that was a a political choice. Um, I mean, China didn't really care what it saved, but uh, not... But it, I'm not saying it was out to try to save the capitalists. It was just trying to keep the world economy afloat because sure. it had not achieved its goals. Realizing that, it began the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which was, I've said on uh, This is Revolution, was basically the Marshall Plan on crack. It was, it was a Marshall Plan when adjusted for inflation 12 times higher, built to build a land and sea but not a but not a blue water sea, and actually it's kind of important. A land and sea infrastructure around the entirety of Eurasia and parts of Africa, um, on a scale the world's which is never known. And I that is not happening in the way it was going to happen now. And that that is also something we're gonna have to deal with because it, yeah. because that's part of the sovereign debt crisis of a lot of these these uh, smaller nations. And we talked about Sri Lanka, but let's go back. Let's go yeah. back because this Nothing's like this has happened exactly like this before, but elements of this have happened since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's like, I mean, I've spent a lot of my time and my studies uh, working on the 1970s, understanding that moment of economic and political turbulence uh, as a period that I was calling like 10 or so years ago that we're in a similar sort of situation to the 1970s. And so I spent a lot of time studying and the way in which I approached that topic was through a sovereign debt crisis, which was the um, the fiscal crisis in New York City um, in 1974 to 1975. A lot of the methods and means um, by which um, other financial crises were solved uh, essentially solved on the backs of the working class, solved through austerity, solved, solved through structural adjustment, where sort of uh, there was a test case there that existed in New York City, a successful one. If you look at it from the viewpoint of the <laughs> class, um, you had conditions, financial conditions in New York City um, where, well, let's let's step back a little bit. Right. One of the interesting things about the New York City financial crisis, which is very memorable because in 1975, you know, New York City had been rolling over debt after debt. They've been allegedly only using um, the private bond system, you know, borrowing monies from banks and other entities in order to fund capital investment. But more and more as the Great Society program and the funding um, for that was cut back through Nixon in the 1970s. Uh, New York City started to borrow uh, for operating expenses, for operating all sorts of things like a free university system under CUNY, things like a uh, free or subsidized hospital system owned by the city itself, things like a subway whose fare hasn't been, hadn't been raised in decades, all sorts of stuff. What Joshua Freeman, the great working class historian of New York, uh, called a uh, municipal social democratic polity, right? Mm-hmm. All of these sort of welfare state esque uh, public goods, um, commons, essentially, that were funded um, by the city itself with grants, of course, from the state and from the federal government. But this works through the post-war period for a lot of reasons. I mean, the first is that New York City has a very strong uh, light sort of supple and um, liquid uh, light manufacturing base, which was important not just for revenues for the city, but also because the local local elements of the New York City ruling class, which is to say shop owners, but especially uh, small manufacturing um, uh, business owners, had an investment actually in the social reproduction of the working class of the city. 
You know, they had an investment in workers being able to get to work on time, workers being educated, knowing how to read and write, workers getting health care and things of that sort. As you know, the big the big story that's always told is about white flight and the and the flight to suburbia, which is a big part of it, too. But what deindustrialization also does as the 50s turn into the 60s and into the 70s, as the the scope of city governance rises and as the sort of economic conditions of the country and as New York City change, as more and more people move out, more and more industry moves out, not simply because it was expensive uh, to manufacture in New York City, because you had a lot of advantages to manufacture in New York City. You had these networks and nodes of different like textile manufacturers, electronic manufacturers. We're all doing small little parts of these larger production processes and combined together. They made this like really powerful network of production. But, you know, just changes in the composition of capital meant that you needed larger and larger shops that you just could not put in New York City, blah, blah, blah. So the point is, is by the time the 1970s come, you got this massive overhang of debt. You have the banks of the city of New York and national banks uh, at that point in time, very much in hock, very much uh, indebted with these New York City bonds. And one day when they offer the bonds, as the city always did, nobody shows up. There's no takers for the bond bonds. This precipitates uh, an immense social crisis. And what you have is lined up on the one hand, you have um, the sort of rising Democrat is, let's call them new Democrats, right? Ones who are sort of sick of the old stuffy New Deal order, uh, more sort of attached to, say, the interests of uh, entertainment, retail, finance. Uh, you have them and the bankers on the one hand, uh, and of course, like the conservatives in New York City. And then on the other hand, you have what's left of the small manufacturers, you have the vast working class of the city, and you have what's left of the New Deal coalition. There's a lot of jockeying that happens. And this is why this situation is interesting, because we look back on it and we say to ourselves, of course, the Ford says to New York City, drop dead. Of course, there's no bailout. But conditions in 1975 were far different, not just material conditions, but ideological conditions as well. You have to remember that uh, the we're still in the midst of a Cold War. Right. There's a great ideological and geopolitical battle between the, the, to the East and the West, the Soviet bloc and the free world. Um, this is before the sort of Brezhnevite decay of the Soviet economy really hit full stride or at least was visible, you know, to yeah, Cold War commentators. But it was not obvious. Yeah, it wasn't obvious at that point in time. So there were powerful forces at the national level, um, powerful forces at the international level who were calling on Gerald Ford, who, of course, is an accidental president. Uh, to simply give a bailout, to return to the status quo post ante, to make some sort of deal in order to, you know, cut the the interest rates on the bonds. The federal government comes in lends at zero percent interest or something like that for a while. It wasn't given that Ford would say to the city, "Drop dead," and it was not given within the jockeying between the power structure of the city, which is to say, um, you know, the traditional ruling parties and the ruling class and finance, but also importantly, the trade unions, which were integrated into the city governance in a way that sort of represents the high point of the sort of Fordist post deal order. Um, there was no, there was nothing that said that there was going to necessarily be what there was, which was, of course, a banker's coup. There was a, a organization quickly put together called the Municipal Assistance Corporation, which is 
under a guy named Felix Roatan, who was a private banker at uh, Frere Lazard, an old investment house out of France. Actually, the guy was kind of a socialist, actually, in the weird 1970s way that you could do it. But the Municipal Assistance Corporation, which ends up basically taking on uh, a new a series of debts and forcing the city to restructure all sorts of shit, like raise the subway fare, get rid of the publicly funded hospitals, start to charge tuition, massive layoffs, hundreds of thousands of workers laid off, was essentially a banker's coup. It put bankers in charge of city governance. Why this is important, right, is that this is this transitionary period from one sort of epoch, one mm. what, what the regulation school would call regime of accumulation to another. And the sort of back and forth of this is, I think, um, redolent of the various different forces uh, kind of ad, in an ad hoc way figuring it, their way out of this crisis. It's not like somebody came down and said, let's do neoliberalism. It was a, an attempt to try to save the city in a certain sense, but also transform the city, uh, transform what governance is, and also yeah. transform the, the class relationships that exist within the city. In that sense, it was remarkably successful for the ruling class and then becomes a sort of imprint, uh, a sort of template for the way that things could be done elsewhere. And of course, as the 70s progress, as the Volcker shock takes hold after 1979, as you start to see things like the Latin American debt crisis, the Argentine debt crisis, later on, of course, the um, the Asian, Asian debt, tigers and Asian Russia crisis, the Russian debt crisis and the European sovereign debt crisis culminating the whole thing. And, Ex- and it's and it's not. Um, it's not like a one-to-one comparison, but you see the various ways in which what's considered the Washington consensus or the neoliberal order starts to kind of come into its own in places like Chile, of course, abroad, but also in New York City, too, where importantly, and this is, I think, important for our discussion today, what it does is it takes accountability away from this local level of sovereignty you know, and right. the hard choices and hard decisions necessary, like shutting down the hospital or the school next to your house, uh, all of a sudden goes from something that one might vote for to instead a fait accompli by a, a higher order organization institution like the Municipal Assistance Corporation, all, you know, almost all bankers who basically are forcing structural adjustment as it comes to be called, uh, onto the to, to the governance of the city. So this sort of stuff, I think, is like, again, very redolent of what begins to happen over the next 30 or 40 years. And as you said, culminates in 2008. I mean, I think we need to really think about this because there's a, there's kind of a, I think people don't really periodize the history of the World Bank, but the period, the change in World Bank policies as we know them really begins to shift in 1974. And so in a lot of ways, um, the way austerity was going to be handled was, was tried out um, in New York and in London um, in, the early, in the early to mid-70s and then expanded everywhere else. Now, you might push back and say, well, what about austerity? And, and I'm like, well, the developing world was already in. It never had a period of not. Right. They, were, they, never, they were never included into the social democratic affordance program. To the and, extent that they, they attempted to do an industrialization process, it, it happened mostly within the non-aligned movement, which was an attempt to like play off the so the soviet bloc uh from the quote-unquote west in order to try to get some developmental funds right uh, and outside say, capital 
Yeah, it was it was a way to destabilize and 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 use block competition for for foreign investment, basically, which is not a possibility now. Um, there's been some attempts for people to do that off of Russia, China versus the versus the U.S., but you will notice that they don't really do it um, for developmental aid anymore. They mostly do it for geopolitical and, and like and raw political power of some section of the elites like why is the wagner what's it called the wagner company that crazy right-wing yeah. militia out of russia why are they running all over west africa right now and you right. know shooting up mosques and schools they're trying to prop up one you know ruling class click against another it's not right. baldly ideological or even geopolitical oftentimes but I think New York's a good example, and I think it's a good example of why also, like, the, the neat third worldist narrative about this is not true. Also, it's just fundamentally not entirely true um, that uh, imperialism operated off of super profits being used to maintain a Fordist system as a buy-off to stop world revolution. Hmm. That was a theory that was come up with in the mid-1980s. It's basically a conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, but one thing I will say is that it was never popular closer to the fu- to, to when the facts actually look like it might be true. So if you look at the development of Keynesian internationalism between the 1950s and 1974, and the de-radicalization and the, and the of the Union started in the 1950s with the purging of the communists, which got very little pushback from mm. workers which i think people miss mm. like it was not there was not a whole lot of pushback against the red scare from workers um i know there's some heroic stories and that's 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 fine but it's but it was there was not a massive counter assault from the rank and file or it would not have happened and that is an important point to point out um so that so when you're looking at it from like 1979 and looking at the 50s through the 70s, something like that third wordless narrative can make sense. But the funny thing is that was not popular in the time period in which one yeah. might actually see the conditions for which it might seem to be true. The owl of Minerva flew at dusk for that one. Yeah, it right? flew, <laughs> flew like the next dusk. Um, and so uh, that, you know, um, what... What we began to see, though, and this is this is a point that I think someone like John Smith's version of imperialism kind of sees. And we talk about imperialism. One of the problems is there's about even Marxists have about ninety different versions of it. And nobody actually tells you which one they're using. Yeah. Um, but you see in the in the World Bank conditions for in the International Monetary Fund's conditions for bailing out these countries and for giving loans, um, all kinds of clauses snuck in which reduce local sovereignty. But what people have missed is despite decentralization of things like block grants um, and whatnot, the entire 80s and 90s, and even today, uh, you'll see conservative politicians talk about re-empowering local groups, and as soon as they get in power, that's the first thing they cut out. Mm. Like, if you look at what happened in Georgia what happened in uh, Florida, you have the, you have the central executive, like totally destroying um, uh, local community groups. Uh, local, uh, that has even happened here in Utah. Like, like we followed the community practice and then they just overrode it. 
Um, Texas is really good at um, in, uh, passing laws in the state legislature that take powers away from uh, municipalities, especially on social issues, but right. certainly on spending issues as well. I mean, the United um, States is why New York City works in this particular example is because New York, because America and its federal structure is like very weird and, and causes all sorts of bizarre like political distortions. Like the fact that you needed to create a municipal social democracy to begin with, as opposed to one on like a national level, right, is very United right. States. And yeah, the fact you. that New York City can only sell bonds, it can't obviously print currency, neither can New York State. And so you have to. Rely that's not on just it. United States. But yeah, but that's why this is the United States parts of it. Uh, the Constitution pretty much limits what the federal government can do to like insurance being an insurance company uh, and, and then national policing for security issues in the army, which is. Kind of also why we're shitty at imperialism, to be frank. Yeah, I think we talked about yeah. that last time, right? With the but, Ferguson but like stuff. that has implications for for municipal governments. So we put all the social democratic institutions at the municipal level, which don't have currency sovereignty, and in a lot of cases can't even carry debt in certain areas. Like mm. they're not allowed to. So depending on the state constitution, um. We almost had, we were very close to having a severe sovereign debt cap. People forget this because California is doing so well right now. Mm. California is an interesting case because it's hypercyclic. Mm. So so the, in America, there's there's kind of two kinds of economies. There's countercyclic economies, which are the resource extraction ones, like Wyoming, uh, the Dakotas. So when things, things are bad, everyone goes and pumps oil, right? Like, um, and then there's hypercyclic ones. Which means when things are good, and that's that's New York and California. Uh, when things are good, New York and California seem flush with inordinate amounts of money. Mm-hmm. They seem to have budget surpluses out the ass. Mm-hmm. You can talk about them being one-fifth of the economy, uh, blah, 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 blah. The moment you start having real contractions, um, all of a sudden those states have to take on massive amounts of debt. Love because, to be living at the canary, living with the canary inside the cage in the coal mine right now, sitting here in New York City. Yeah, and you guys kind of are more than California in a way because California has some weirder internal political practices that um, are unique to it. Yeah. But um, I, I wanted to point out that the whole state of California almost pulled a Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2007-2008 which I think people forget um, uh, and what has happened there in their recovery is similar to what happened after the 1970s in New York mm. which made New York over the course of the 80s and 90s during the Giuliani period for example the playground of the most elite elements of capital that were not directly productive mm-hmm. that and and we've also seen that happen and in, in san francisco mm-hmm. uh due to its proximity to tech in la due to its proximity to cultural production yeah and um that that dynamic which is also why when people threaten shit and new york has done this before new york gone all the way back if you know your and, and i'm sure you do know your new york history but uh New York going all the way back to the Civil War has occasionally threatened to be a city state. Um, uh, Just as Staten Island has periodically uh, threatened to go to New Jersey. Right. Um, I say let them have them. 
um, the the interesting dynamic that that has is New York and California are particularly dependent upon the rentier status of the dollar. And so if they ever left the union, this is what people don't understand. If you, if California ever left the union, its currency would be valueless overnight. And most of what it does is based off rents. It, mm-hmm. Yes, it does make agri, it does a lot of agriculture, but it's not the, the, the base agriculture still in the, still in the Midwest. Um, it's mostly niche agriculture that happens in California. Um, what would immediately happen? Well, its economy would would basically, at the moment of declaring secession, it would have been shot itself in the foot economically immediately. Yeah. Um, and because it would have destroyed the sovereign dollar, which all this is based off. Of. Yeah. Um, but I think people need to quit thinking about this solely in forms of nation states and go back to our world systems analysis thing. Because one of the things you see here is municipalities, even fairly wealthy ones, because New York was not a poor place in the 1970s. No, absolutely not. Um, become subject to discipline beyond their political control. And that happens at the state level in the United States because of our particular federated system. But we also use what we and Europe together use the World Bank and the IMF to impose that on other countries. Right. And um, and more importantly, in a lot of ways, uh, we also use it um, to keep... It becomes a way of making sure that labor discipline can be reestablished. Mm. Um one of the things that you see at the ends of uh, the ends of Keynesianism um, and how it, and we, we should talk about the end of Keynesianism because while most like I say, if you were to talk to central bankers now, they're still 50, 50 likely to be as Keynesian as they are to be Chicago neo uh, neoclassical, right. Mm-hmm. In their orientation. Um, we don't have a lot of Alan Greenspan's left. <laughs> um, what, what was his famous quote? Uh, there appeared to be a flaw in the right. In, yeah. In the system. Which, after the whole system collapsed, he, was, he uh, testified in front of Congress. It appears that there were some flaws within our system of analysis. But one thing that we have to look at when we look at that is that the 1970s is the ending of the ability to really use taxation policy and and fiscal stimulus policy directly um, as a as a means of regulating the mode of accumulation. Um, I mean, t- uh, the releasing of finance uh, and the releasing of capital controls and the creation of hot money flows, which, you know, lead from that, of course, uh, changes really, I think, the um, a lot of the sort of uh, waters in which various different states swam, certainly developing ones at this at this time. Yeah, totally. And I think that completely, I mean, what you see is what Naomi Klein describes in the shock doctrine and then mistakenly says somehow was a neoliberal conspiracy. Uh, But what you really see is a lot of places start hitting developmental limits. Mm. um, And they, the, the, what you, what you also see is the beginning of what's called the middle income trap, Mm. right? Which is a kind of a misnomer, but it's the, the idea that you start developing a middle class, they need external uh, 
they need um, more external resources. When they need external resources, you become su- you become subject to external pressures. You lose uh, currency sovereignty. Uh, you have to rely on either a reserve basket of currencies, is what we currently use, or in the Bretton Woods system, gold, mm-hmm. um, or uh, some peg to gold. Um, and because you can't like internal markets. So uh, this is what the MMT is actually kind of right. Internal markets can work off credit and debt infinitely. Um, The moment they have to trade with an outsider, that changes the power dynamics and it falls apart, which is why, you know, you had like the development of metallism and this and the other. Um, um, David Graeber's popularization of the anthropology of debt actually mm. makes some of this clear. But what, what he misses in that book, and other people have made more clear, is that the conditions described by capitalists and like the, the wealth of nations actually do apply between groups. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing, tr- there's no trust or authority other than pure force and subjugation that makes you accept the debt and credit relations of an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, so the gift economy that you have and the debt economy that emerge from that doesn't work. And so that is why currency, like you see the, the currency is used for outsiders. You use it to trade with people outside of your society, not within it. Um, and and, uh, and it, the reason why credit really falls apart in like feudal societies, for example, is there's not a high degree of social trust between classes mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and capitalism kind of... It's actually interesting because it is, it is, it's generative function. It's class conflict, but that the class conflict always sees sublimated and exploitation and not an explicit domination is actually really crucial to how it works. Mm. Um, Say more. Well, you always look at like when you look at the early modern societies that emerge at the end of the medieval period. Why does England come out on top of New Spain? This is something Robert Brenner sets out to figure out. Mm. What, like, if you if you accept the world systems thesis that, like, and I kind of do, that you start seeing the beginnings of capitalism in the in the early bourgeois city states of of Italy. Mm. Uh, why is it then that you really see the first capitalist state in England? Mm. Um, and that is because in a in a dominating system, what do you invest in? weapons right but that's not productive weapons are not productive to anything right um and the larger that system gets the more and more you have to produce in weapons which by the way should worry us about our own society oh yeah um the english produce weapons too this is not to make it sound like they were like peaceniks but the primary reinvestment that happens in english capital and its imperialism is reinvestment into labor efficiency. Right. That's the difference. That's yeah. why the industrial revolution happens where it happens. And it of and it of course like uh, takes on certain sort of developments that had happened in those northern Italian city states, not just mm-hmm. you know in what is it uh, sixteen ninety four where the Bank of England arises, uh, but also productive techniques as well. I mean the first great manufacturing facilities were in you know Genoa and Venice producing uh, warships and producing right. cannons and things of that sort. And of course too then like the the imperial project then creates the the plantation 
which then becomes another sort of way in which capital starts to take all these different sort of war making or imperial sort of enterprises and bring it in and internalize it into itself and make the turn it into a virtuous cycle instead of simply the destruction of these goods, the destruction of people and these goods in warfare. Right. And imperial right. plunder. Right. Which becomes which is the which is the fundamental difference. Right. This yeah. is the, the question that a lot of post Marx Marxists set out to ask and something that that uh, I spent a lot of my time thinking about. And this is what a lot of world system theory is actually trying to figure out. Why didn't late an antique empires, whether it's Rome, uh, China or the Islamicite states, why did they not become capitalist? Like, like that's a big question yeah and uh because a lot of them had plenty of technology they had labor efficiency they had division of labor not all of them are futile mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination um why is it these weird outcrops and it, it's not just it's in europe it's an outcrops of europe like it's mm. okay um it's in the italian city states it's in england it's the in, backwaters of it's england in, right <laughs> right it's in, yeah it's it's in places that it's not like, even in london it's in northern and western england it's in northwest england and wales and a little bit in scotland like yeah. um it's this is something to to really think about and this is also kind of why the us is interesting in this regard because we were also a weird backwater in our in in even in our early imperial phase, and we should call it what it was, yeah. Western expansion is a very nice way of saying yeah. imperialism. Manifest destiny, uh, Western expansion is an internal uh, colonial project. So right. Although to project. say it, call it internal in in seventeen ninety is actually a misnomer, though. Like no, that's true. You've got two thirds <laughs> of the country out there past the Ohio Valley. Right? Right. It's not exactly internal. It was considered internal if only for like ideological slash uh, geographic right right reasons. right and I also the the vacuum that existed in governance out there i think people forget that like the claim people like, should see my my air quotes when i said that because when yeah, i said yeah. vacuum of governance i'm talking about of course indigenous peoples who john locke famously uh did the broadside against where they don't improve right. the lands and so they cannot actually be owners of it right um oh well, it's funny because the, John Locke's famous double step of liberalism is the primary contradiction of liberalism, right? Like, think about it. The, the first thing is you improve the land, therefore you own it, which isn't true. The land was, and by the way, he knew it wasn't true. The the enclosures were ending during his fucking lifetime. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that it does um, is that there's two things it justifies. One, it justifies his possessing the indigenous. Two. It also says that if you self-own and don't improve yourself, well, we have the right to to uh, obscure your, your self-ownership. But you can claim against the king that you are not subject to the king. You are a citizen because you have self-ownership. Right. So it's it immediately gives the idea of universal self-ownership while immediately taking it away for people whose uh, uh, lack of improvement you don't recognize. And And, and the funny thing is, um, most of the indigenous peoples were not even like we 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 tend to think they were all like great trains, uh, great trains hunter gatherer peoples. They weren't. A lot of them were were fairly agricultural. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Or if you read the recent Graeber and uh, what's it, Grabe Grow, the other guy, yeah, uh, 
Gringro, if you read that, of course, you see, too, that there was or at least they argue that there was a, a rejection even in North America uh, explicitly or um, North America of the sort of great like agricultural sort of city based economies that had existed allegedly in the southern part of the Mississippi um, River area. Um, there was like a political decision, they argue, in order to, to yeah, get away yeah, from yeah, that. Yeah, 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 I, 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 uh, I think that argument's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's an interesting one for sure. It's it's interesting to the extent that they use it as part of their larger thesis about political agency being uh, right. political agency being uh, ultimately more essential than like uh, a Whiggish sort of developmental process. Such right, as but John the, Locke would argue for. But but, but that's a. Not to get derailed, but they're also arguing against Marxists who say that we have to actually change material conditions to reorganize society. That's another part of that argument they're arguing against. And I'm like, no, like by rejecting certain city-states, they also did certain physical developments which change the the likelihood of this, that, and the other. If anyone's Uh, interested in an extended debate on this, Matt Crispin and I last month or two months ago or whatever did it. You can find it back in the files. But yeah, me and Daniel Bitten from What Is Politics did like a three-hour. Oh, like, cool. Yeah, there's parts where Bitten even goes into where they cite stuff wrong. Like, um, it's uh, Graber, towering figure, also dead now. So you, I'm sure he'd be having some epic Twitter Twitter threads. I got in a fight with him in, on Twitter with uh once actually. Oh, nice. I try not to do that. With I it wasn't in purpose. I, I just I was talking about the debt book and I said calling calling uh. Confucians, and I was living in Korea at the time and studying Korean Confucianism. I'm like, calling Confucians anti-capitalist is a, just a category error. <laughs> like, there is no capitalism for them to be they anti-mercantile, but not like. Yeah, that's that's similar to the episode you did with the guy about uh, medieval usury and stuff. Like, right, they're, it's they're, like these are things that don't exist, and so you can only really kind of propel history backwards or the present backwards in time to yeah. understand like. You know, um, what is it? Parisian scholars of uh, of uh, in Paris in the 13th century. Yeah. And I, I believe Graeber called me a brain dead Marxist, and I was like, I guess I take it. <laughs> like this is an extended <laughs> this is an extended sidebar, but uh, yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think one thing we can we can see already, you know, not just in this historical case, but also when we were talking about the present as well, is the way in which these sort of things ricochet back and forth between the core and the periphery and the way that, you know, capitalist development is the sort of, it's a process, right? It's, it's value in motion and uh, credit then, especially towards the end of the 17th century becomes part of this motor uh, of what the liberals would call progress. But really we understand of course, credit and interest of course, as the sort of tripartite division of the way in which the surplus based on exploitation is divided among the ruling class. Right. And it's you know, a way interest to price and rent time. and profits. It's well, a way to price time. Yeah. It's a way to price time because what you have, like in most societies, the primary economic driver of a of a of a hierarchical um, agricultural society is rents. Mm-hmm. Like that's that, and rents are old. But what what finance does, and this is interesting if you look at the attitudes of even like American founding fathers, like actually read what they say about bankers. Like 
And it's not just anti-Semitism. Like, <laughs> um, in fact, I, I kind of think the whole structural anti-Semitic argument from Mosai Postone has actually hurt our ability to understand some of the stuff. Mm. Um, uh, Interesting. Uh, I think I, I think actually we should be careful. Like, yes, there is a truth that for over-focusing on bankers as an intermediary elite usually is ethnicized. And historically, that comes down on Jews, the Chinese... <laughs> Sometimes Muslims, if you're in a non-Muslim society, yeah. Uh, uh, there's other groups that happens to who like make up an ethnic middle class. Okay, fine, that's true enough. But banking does play a specific role, just like production does in capital. Yeah. And what banking allows you to do is to play with um inputs in versus inputs out as part of your profit margins. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to offset what seems like profit declines because your inputs go in at a way cheaper period of development than you recuperate your out, uh, yeah. than you fully recuperate the outputs. And so that's the pricing of time. Yeah. But turnover also, time. Yeah. Yeah. But this is also a way that you can capture a bunch of resources from other societies. This is a way to set up um, sovereign peonage without directly enslaving people. Yes. Although in the early modern period, it was also used just to directly enslave people. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and we should be quite honest about this. Well, the Portuguese and the Congolese did this um, as a kind of joint project. I mean, the, 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 the West African slave trade, I think people forget this was monopolized by a, by a cartel of the of the Congo Empire and yeah. the Portuguese, you'll um, often have right wingers bringing that up as sort of a gotcha question. But you know, anybody that reads about the history of the slave trade knows that West Africa, uh, in particular, due to very his, its historical development, had at that in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, um, ha, uh, its primary form of wealth was in humans. Right, uh, not in land, but in you know the ownership of other humans. It's capital that actually transforms this sort of embedded slave system of West Africa, where there's certain customs, there's certain rights that exist, uh, into like the horrific chattel slavery form, which turns people into commodities themselves. But yeah, you know, it, it ends what would we call antique slavery in Africa, um, in both the Congolese case and in the Arab and in the Islamic Arab slave trade case. And how is it that those people end up becoming slaves? It's it's and it's in the Arab case as well. It's not simply warfare, obviously, too, right. but it's indebtedness. Right, it's debt. Debt's part of it. So, um, but it, it, this is a key thing about capital and the brutality of capital, and what some of these new histories of slavery do bring out um, is that commodifying this made these traditional forms of domination worse way worse uh, um yeah. and it also destroyed the congo empire eventually because it, it this if you're good material so you want to study something interesting um the congo empire's use of slaves and its and its and its capacity to expand the slave trade as an export system led to the decentralization of the state the arbitrary and absolute rule of a few monarchs who are eventually deposed and then the fractures left in its wake are used to colonize to begin the colonization of Africa. Like 
Yeah, and not to mention just from like a, a, a strictly like historical, logical perspective, right? When we're talking about what capital does and creates production efficiencies, you know, on land or in factories or whatever, the only way to get more productivity out of your slaves, and we saw this, of course, in the American South uh, through the early period of this country, is through absolute surpluses by driving them and pushing them. You can, um, of course, create various implements like the cotton gin or whatever, but the sort of the, the, the internal logic of a, of a slave economy does not lead to the sort of breakthroughs of production that, of course, you see in modern manufacturing, capitalist, industrial. Right. Absolutely uh, not. The other thing, and you see that in West Africa as well. Um, the other thing that it doesn't lead to is um, uh, it, it is so destructive of human lives. It can it often can't be sustained just on levels of population, because one of the things that you see, I mean, people forget this. Indigenous people were the primary slaves in the early in the even in early North America. They just um, couldn't survive it. <laughs> they basically they already been hit. The, the indigenous populations had already been devastated by by smallpox before they even encountered the, the English. Yeah. Um, um, and. Then, if you study what happened on Hispaniola, it's it was it was it was a genocide through through slavery. This they also were. happened in northern Mexico. <clears throat> it also happened in the mines of Potosi, you know, right. in, uh, in Peru. Right. So, but so what? So what? Like but, early mercantile capital does is it is it like takes it um, it destroys this native population, but finds a population in which enslavement is part of the you know political economy such as it is, and then sort of moves that over into the new world. And you're saying that population itself can't sustain just by natural surplus, right? You, you, even you under you the drive best conditions. the surplus down, and, and I mean, you, you think about what happens when they make sla- when they ban the slave trade in the United States, which they do way before the Civil War. Mm. Well, it actually even makes it more horrific because the only way to produce slaves after that is basically rape. Yeah. Like it's and the it's, wholesale tearing apart of families in order to right. find ideal pairs. Yeah, um, it's it it's 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 a terrible situation. Yeah. So and even uh, then the the slave um agricultural industrial cash crop economy ends up denuding the lands of the oh, yeah, no, seaboard like, very quickly. So slavery has to start moving away. We're very far afield right we're now. We're far afield right now. <laughs> but, but it's but a good this, conversation. This, this is well, this is important to understand though. Yeah. Why financialization is important. Yeah. All right. I know this is crazy because you're like, well, how is this about financialization? What the the, the process of and this is an insight Marx has. The process of capital exploitation is to make these power relations more and more abstract over time. Yes. And so ultimately, like debt peonage is is hidden yeah. almost. Um, and, and what do I mean debt peonage is hidden? Is there a way to live in the capitalist economy if you are not bourgeois without debt? There is, there is no way the average person can reproduce their, their life after Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall.